Welcome to State of the State, the monthly roundup of policy and research for the state of Michigan, brought to you by the Institute of Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State University, Russ White, and our friends here at MSU Radio Studios. I'm Arnold Weinfeld, Associate Director for the Institute, and joining me as always is co-host and Institute Director, Dr. Mac Grossman. Our guest today will be Tony Dawn, Executive Director of Fair Maps Michigan. We'll be discussing the redistricting process in Michigan, the current remapping process, and what brought us to this stage. Well, Matt, a lot's been going on since uh, we, we last met, uh, both nationally and across the state. Where do you want to start? you want to start with the national uh, scene? Um, it would seem that uh, Donald Trump's going to be is the presumptive Republican uh, nominee. We'll see how long Nikki Here Hill... in Michigan, we're going to pretend there's still a race. Right, and have a primary. Right, um, right. And I uh, hope we get some candidate visits and some advertising dollars while it's still going, <laughs> theoretically. Theoretically, theoretically. Yeah, I, you know, we very well might from... Uh, it, it's it's almost like the presidential campaign. I mean, this is started as early as it's ever started, as it hasn't it. I mean, that I can remember, there there really is no contenders uh, on on either side, except for those that are uh, those that are leading pack. We always see a winnowing from Iowa to New Hampshire uh, and beyond, but uh, this was pretty quick. Uh, and to be honest, it really hasn't been a, a race for months. Um, no one really uh, showed much chance of actually being able to uh, get a coalition together within the Republican Party to defeat Trump. No one seemed willing to, to go against uh, uh, Trump in any uh, big way. And those who did uh, more frontally, like Chris Christie, uh, accumulated negative ratings of 80% within the Republican Party. Yep. And uh, so, so far, uh, Nikki Haley is saying she's still in, even though I saw the other day the RNC is ready to declare uh, Mr. Trump the presumptive nominee. And uh, Ms. Haley... Trump called them off. He, he said he Did said he? he wanted to win the old-fashioned way. So, well, <laughs> he, he, he wants to defeat her in South Carolina. Yes, and and it and it looks like he will do that, right? I mean, she is uh, she's way behind in her own home state. Uh, she is. Uh, there will be money coming in uh, with the performance in New Hampshire, and as the last uh, uh, hope for an alternative within the Republican Party. Uh, and of course, she has some advantages uh, on her own her home turf. But so far, she hasn't made it a race. And even if she were to pull out some uh, spectacular win, she's. 60 to 80 points <laughs> behind uh, in other places. So uh, it's going to be a, a, a very, very, a very uphill battle. We're talking about basically uh, a stroke or a heart attack as her uh, options here. Well, you know, it's interesting. I didn't know that, that Trump had, had called them off, but uh, is that a good idea for him? I mean, if, if Haley continues to press and ask for debates um, and he refuses and so on and so forth. I, I, I mean, it seems to me that he would just want to move forward as, 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 the, as, as the nominee. He's clearly annoyed that she's still in the race um, and somehow hasn't thought of a good nickname for her yet. So maybe he'll get into it more uh, as as we get closer to, to South Carolina. Um, but, yeah, I think he, he didn't want to uh, have the reputation that he had ended the race, um, you know, before uh, with with internal party maneuvers uh, because uh, he doesn't need to. The old fashioned way. Um 
And on the Democratic side, of course, uh, President Biden unopposed. Uh, you know, you've been noting. Uh, he wasn't unopposed. There were two people oh, there on were, the ballot. That's right. I'm uh, sorry. Quality candidates on the Democratic side, a, uh, a member of Congress and uh, a multiple term candidate, uh, Marianne Williamson, okay. as well. All right. Quality candidate, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, political science has a forgiving definition of a quality candidate, Actually. which is, have you previously held elected office? Uh, so Marianne does not count, but there was at least one. Okay, very good. Nonetheless, it would seem that President Biden is the presumptive Democratic nominee. Um, yet he is, in, in polling right now, even in states like Michigan, is is not doing well. He's, he's behind Trump. Um, should we take any uh any any anything from these early polls or just let them go or what's your what's your thought on this we're about a month away from the general election horse race polls having any relationship with the final uh results um but as we get closer and closer to election day you know they get more and more uh predictive so Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the other um, thing to be watching now is economic indicators. Um, we did see uh, an increase in consumer sentiment uh, in the last uh, reading. Um, the leading economic indicators have been quite negative, which historically are the best uh, predictors at this point in the cycle. Um, so uh, it, he, that has to turn around for uh, his numbers to improve uh, dramatically. Uh, but either way, you know, we're close to a 50-50 country and we're going to have a race that is very close to that. Okay. Yes, it's indeed yesterday. Uh, some leading economic indicators were reported. Inflation is now close to 2% uh, yearly and the economy still seems to be uh, growing uh, very well. Um, even gas prices are hovering at $3 a gallon or, or, or below. Um, and that said, we do know that there are disparities in, in the economy um, when you look around the country um, and look around even in, in, in the state of Michigan. So um, as you noted, it's a 50-50 country and it's probably going to be a very close race. Uh, here on the state level, uh, Governor Whitmer uh, had her state of the state speech uh yesterday wednesday i'm sorry on wednesday um and of course took the opportunity to trumpet all the successes that they had here in this legislative session with democrats in control although they're now tied for the foreseeable future in the house um and uh really no one can say really big spending proposals of course you know they spent uh all the federal or they have spent or uh, have a have allocated all the federal money uh, that they got. Uh, she did. She did mention uh, a housing program of a billion dollars. I, I think that's more or less a continuation of what was started uh, last year. But education, free community college, and free preschool. Uh, we've got a few more tax credits proposed and resource and development. A recreation of a former Governor Snyder job uh, program, the Good Jobs for Michigan now turning into a higher program, which uh, is, is not uncommon for uh, a governor to resurrect something and, and rename it. And uh, then a $5,000 tax credit for caregiving expenses. So there is some uh, cost here. How are we going to be able to afford all these? I was going to say, you seem to have a high standard for what's a big spending program. <laughs> uh, two free years of college, uh, uh, universal preschool, uh, lots of uh, additional tax credits. Uh, it will add up, um, and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of concern about uh, tax revenue from the speech that we heard. Uh, not a whole lot of concern about federal money drying up. We are still benefiting from that uh, federal money coming in uh, over the last 
last uh, few years. Uh, and so it, it probably won't catch up to them this year, but it might set up uh, the, if they pass all that, it might set up uh, the, the next uh, term for, for some more uh, difficulties. But um, I was struck that actually only the first part of the speech really was touting accomplishments. The rest of it was new agenda items. Uh, there was there was time for, for rock song lyrics. I don't Apparently, know if those went I, over well. But uh, yeah. the, uh, the new agenda really was a huge part of it. And it's pretty striking because uh, if you look across all 50 states uh, over time, this last year was one of the most uh, productive and ideological uh, movements of public policy that we've seen across any state for like 50 years. So this was an extraordinary move leftward that they accomplished in the first year. Uh, and yet they're set up to, to try to do a whole lot more. Uh, we'll see if that happens, of course. You know, it's interesting because I did see something where it was noted that in terms of the cost for like the free preschool, that already 40% of uh Four-year-olds are already getting free preschool because of of uh, of of their their income level, and with community college, the same thing. With especially with the reconnect program, um, so they're labeling this as continuing continuing to provide. Uh, opportunities for all, even though I have heard that, sure, what you're doing on the preschool side is uh, giving free preschool for upper middle class people now instead of just uh, low income. So it'll be interesting to see where the money comes from for this, as well as um, as the ideological, uh, ideological uh, discussion. Um, economic development, you know, we've talked about this quite a bit, uh, the SOAR program, uh, was of some controversy. It, it took the governor and legislative leaders uh, some real cajoling and actually some bipartisan work uh, to get that moving. And now Senator McMorrow has had, uh, over the last several months, uh, a committee to explore additional uh, economic development incentives, uh, an R&D tax credit. The point was made that Michigan's one of the few states that does not have an R&D tax credit. Uh, how do you see this uh, economic, these economic development approaches playing out here over the next few months? Well, the R&D tax credit uh, is uh, a, a more common uh, program with some more evidentiary support uh, for its success uh, in stimulating uh, changing business activity. Um, as you know, we've been a, a lone voice in telling people that the business uh, location incentives packages really uh, don't have a uh, support uh, for actually changing business decisions. It's basically people make business location decisions and then rack up the tax credits afterwards rather than uh, making a decision on that basis. But uh, that doesn't mean that we're going to uh, uh, stop doing it. Uh, we have been doing it for, for a long time. Uh, and even when governors say they're going to stop it, they don't end up stopping it. So uh, we are likely to have more uh, of these kinds of uh, business incentives. Um, but it is it is interesting that we're uh, also moving to a little bit broader base uh, business incentive. Now, the governor's proposals come on the heels of her Grow Michigan Council report, as well as a report that came out this week uh, from uh, the group Michigan Future, uh, noting that Michigan still continues to drop in terms of per capita income. We're now 39th in the country in per capita income. And of course, the Grow Michigan Council had uh, several recommendations, uh, many of which have been talked about 
in, in the future. Um, do you see any correlation between uh, what was recommended in the Grow Michigan Council report and, and the governor's proposal? And have other states tried these, and do they make a difference? Well, certainly there's an association because the governor set up the uh, council uh, and it unsurprisingly came to, to support many of the proposals that were already on the Democratic agenda. Um, and population is like that. It, it's an indicator that anyone can claim is going to be is going to be a result of anything that they were already supporting. Uh, and that tends to be the 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 manner in which these things are discussed um that doesn't mean it's a real it isn't a real problem obviously uh we do need to to grow the the population um but uh the cross-state evidence uh does not really show any strong relationship with state policy and population growth uh republicans want to tout uh, Texas uh, Democrats uh, sometimes point to like Minnesota or uh, some other uh, example, but uh, you know that's a very rough <laughs> association. Once you do anything to try to uh, to try to account for other factors, you basically find that it's about uh, climate to some extent, housing, uh, cheap housing availability, but um, really not much that is movable from state policy. Yeah, I, I think in those states that have over the last decade or two, you know, grown, um, there's several factors there, you know, there's, uh, and, and for me, the one I always look at is, is the public private partnership that takes place, uh, in, in those States in, in some way, whether it's, uh, state government, um, you know, uh, deregulating and allowing businesses to go about their business as, as they want, or a true partnership that, leads to a, an economic development strategy for, for, for real growth. So uh, we have some of that in, in this state, but, but you know, uh, this state is really one that has a long history of uh, labor management um, uh, confrontation. Um, it's only been in the recent past that uh, collaboration has become uh, more of a, a standard than, than confrontation, but but the, it still continues, and I, I think we saw that in, in the in the auto strike as well. So, well, and that's one of the reasons why um, these state policy changes are not necessarily going to make these long term differences. If you're a business making a location decision, you're going to have to make that on longer than a two or four year timeline. Uh, and obviously, we saw right to work come into effect and then be repealed. So the idea that businesses are going to look at a state policy environment and perceive it as being stable in Michigan for the next 30 years, I think is pretty low. Uh, so I don't think they're going to make decisions on that basis. Well, one other uh, matter that, of course, has been in the headlines in Michigan is the uh, redistricting commission um, and the remapping process. Um, lawsuit was brought uh, by a, a group of folks uh, claiming that uh, Detroit area was underrepresented. Um, they won their case, and now we're going through a remapping process. And Ipser has, uh, and yourself and uh, some MSU folks, have had a hand in that remapping process. And uh, I think that's a, a good segue to introduce uh, Tony Daunt to the program. Uh, as I noted, Tony is the executive director of Fair Maps Michigan. He's also a member of the State Board of Canvassers and has a long history of involvement in Michigan politics. And he's also a graduate of our Michigan Political Leadership Program. So, Tony, welcome to the program. Uh, tell us a bit about the work of your organization and your perspective on where things stand now with the remapping process. 
Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. And you mentioned I'm a graduate of the MPLP program. I'm also a Michigan State graduate in 2001. So it's always good to be back here. Go green. and um, Go white. Love it. Big game tonight. Yes. And um, yeah, so the redistricting issue, this is, you know, it's not a topic that I ever envisioned myself being so heavily involved with it's um you know it's it's an important process it's one of the most political processes in in our system and uh i i came to be involved back in 2017 when the group voters not politicians circulated uh, a ballot to put into our constitution an independent citizens redistricting commission Uh, i was one of the leading voices uh, failed, um, you know, unfortunately, from my perspective, uh, opposing this. And some of the some of the key reasons that I was I was opposed to it were, um, you know, I saw it as as set it up for a lack of accountability. Um, I thought that having the the process that they had laid out that ran, you know, basically random citizens uh, conducting such and such a complex topic and process uh, they were deemed to be led possibly astray by experts, and they would have to rely heavily on experts. And I think as we saw, as you mentioned, with the court case that was filed in the spring of 22, trial was held in the fall of 23, and then a decision came down just before Christmas, a uh, 3-0 decision from the panel in favor of the plaintiffs. Uh, and what that decision leaned heavily on uh, in in its you know, in its finding for the plaintiff was the evidence that the experts did lead them astray. And so uh, we've had to, this commission has had to uh, recalibrate. They've uh, hired a new expert related to the Voting Rights Act. And as you mentioned, they are in the process of redrawing. And they've got a very tight timeline to get this accomplished. There were seven districts in the state house and six districts in the state Senate that were deemed unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment, uh, the Equal Protection Clause, essentially saying that the, the commission engaged in a racial gerrymander, that they improperly used race as a determinant factor for how they drew these lines. And um, somewhat um, ironically, the reason all of that information was available, all of the evidence was available to the plaintiffs and their attorneys to put forward in the trial and for the the three judges to look at was the transparency that was put forward in the process. So, you know, I think you can say that that was a positive, that all of the information, all of the discussions were there, the transcripts were there, and they were able to go back and look at that and say, you know, whatever your reasoning is now, the evidence shows that you just improperly discussed race. And so the house is being dealt with first because we have house state house elections up this year in 2024 the filing deadline is um april 23rd i believe it is and so uh the judges have set a a solid deadline of march 29th for them to have decided what the new maps will look like moving forward because the senate is not up until 2026 They've set that aside, essentially, and there will be a hearing in early April to determine how the Senate remap will proceed. I think how this commission conducts itself and what it comes up with 
for the House will probably be a, a determining factor of what this panel decides to do for the Senate. And uh, side note, the, the plaintiffs did ask for, as part of their request for relief and a remedy, to have special elections in the state Senate, at least for the impacted districts. But the judges, uh, upon reflection and looking at what they can and cannot do, uh, decided against that. I yeah, said one thing at a time. So uh, now you, you mentioned the experts and how they were led astray. There were experts that uh, were uh, letting them commission know that uh, they were being led astray. Isn't that right, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we, we were certainly clear throughout, um, what, what was happening. Um, it was interesting to just read the decision that basically they, the people had brought in, uh, witnesses, um, but the judges essentially said, we don't really need the witnesses, didn't cite much from the witnesses and just cited from the deliberations of the commission directly. So, so tell us a little bit about this issue where the commission says that they were trying to, um, trying to create uh, black opportunity districts um, and so that they needed to use uh, racial data to do that. Um, but uh, the 14th Amendment says that uh, they, you know, the interpretation is that they couldn't predominantly use race in drawing those districts. So what what should they have done uh, from the beginning on this? Yeah, I, th I think what they should have done um, is is listen to the, the residents of Detroit who spoke out strongly during the public comment period that what this commission had been discussing and what they had proposed was not going to cut it for them and that it was going to lead to reduced representation. And they should have listened to the experts like the folks from IPSER and, and uh, the Michigan Civil Rights Commission even saying, look, you're going about this all wrong. You're, you're setting yourself for setting yourself up for, for a lawsuit as we saw it played out just that. Um, so I think that's, you know, fundamentally, they should have listened to the people of Detroit who have lived experience, who know what it takes, who, when they run for office, uh, and that was part of the trial as well, were a couple of individuals, Virgil Smith and Lamar Lemons, who had served in the legislature and either ran for office or worked on campaigns. When they go into some of these suburbs, um, it's very difficult for them to get a door opened when they knock on it and ask for a vote. And this floor, or the ceiling rather, that the expert, uh, Bruce Adelson in particular, had laid out of 35 to 40% black voting age population, um, all of the people who are involved in Michigan politics and people from the city of Detroit who have run for office said, this isn't going to work. You're not going to get proper black representation for these folks. And we saw that uh, with the 2022 elections where the, the, the representation re was reduced significantly in both the state house and the state Senate. And um, I think it's, it's very clear that perhaps the commission struggled with that advice but ultimately they went along with it. And I think what really harmed them was in their closed session, a couple of voices, a couple of commissioners, um, it seemed quite clear that they were trying to paper over the record and kind of backtrack and, and create a reason after the fact as to why they did this a certain way. And the panel didn't look kindly on that. And I think they've got a strong eye on this commission right now as they go about the redraw process. And what's your assessment of how things are going so far with the with the redraw? It does seem like they've kind of gone back to the other side of the pendulum. They're claiming they're not going to look at race at all in the beginning. 
Um, you know, how's it how's it going so far? Are we going to get better districts from this commission? Uh, I think that's an open question. The the decision came down on December twenty first, and then there was a hearing on January fifth to to review for the court to review the the remedy briefs and proposals, and the uh, judge Kethledge, uh, one of the judges on the panel really laid into the commission as being engaged in essentially nothing but defiance and disarray since that decision had come down. And that was because they were, you know, the defiance was a large number of them refused to acknowledge the fact that the evidence was there. They, they were intent on appealing to the Supreme Court of the United States. And the disarray was just the infighting and the lack of focus on setting about to redraw these maps. I think but now they have twelve or fourteen, 14 maps uh, yeah. that are that are that are done. Um, they look okay. Uh, you know, I I haven't looked at them in depth. I think that there's a contingent that is on the commission that's focused on as few changes as possible to surrounding districts, and there's another that wants to take a, a little broader look and. F- you know, their interpretation of the ruling is it is reasonably necessary to adjust additional lines because some of these districts sandwiched in between the ones that were deemed unconstitutional had the exact same problem. They just weren't part of the case because, you know, for instance, some we lost some of the plaintiffs um, in in the in in the process because they moved, um, and so I think that's going to be something that. Ultimately, the special master who's been appointed to review the maps put forward by the commission looks at um, in kind of on a parallel track. There's another special master that was appointed by this panel to draw maps independent of the commission and provide this to the court for the court to make its its ultimate decision. So at the end of the day, when all is said and done. We find ourselves in the same position. We have found ourselves at so many redistricting episodes back in the courts. Um, And you noted that, uh, you know, you were opposed uh, to the constitutional amendment. That being said, uh, we are where we are right now. Uh, What is the the role uh, that you see for your group either in this uh, remapping process right now uh, or Moving forward, I gather that we might have some recommendations to uh, maybe uh, for the legislature to maybe amend the constitutional amendment. Um, where do you see this headed? And let me just uh, highlight one piece of that. It, let's say that the constitutional amendment is going to remain in place in some way. Mm-hmm. Is there any way to modify it to make right. sure the process goes better next time? Great, great question. I think... And that that gets to another one of you know the reasons that I and, and the folks that you know I work with were were opposed to this is when you put something in the Constitution, whether it's this or a tax policy or or you know any other item, the problem is when these issues come up that need to be fixed. It's very difficult, if not nearly impossible, to make changes because you have to go into the Constitution and change them, and that takes. Um, that takes money or it takes two thirds support of the legislature to get it on the ballot. And then you've got to run a campaign that costs these days millions, tens of millions of dollars 
to get through to the public and, and express your position, whether for or against. So, you know, some of the things that would be, I think, sensible to address would be perhaps some additional accountability in here for the commission. I think with the disarray we've seen that it it does create, there are few incentives for potential bad actors to um, be up front and to conduct themselves admirably. I think we've had lots of competing allegations uh, among the commissioners over the last few months, and I think uh, some accountability to people other than themselves is helpful. I think that this issue of communities of interest, it's so nebulous. It is, it is so kind of, as, as uh, Mark Grebner referred to it, uh, it's, you know, it's like nailing jello to the wall. There's really no, there's no definition of it. So it can mean whatever you want. I think some, some guidelines on what that means, what is an accepted community of interest. You know, we had prior to this process, we had what we're called the APOL standards, which focused on breaking as few municipal lines as possible. That's where you live is obviously a community of interest. And I think that's where the commission ran aground in many ways this last time around. So those are two things that I think uh, would be helpful for future commissions. I do think this lawsuit and the result of it will serve as a warning to future commissions about the type of experts that they hire, the type of advice that they listen to, and I think that will be helpful. And you know, ultimately, I do think there are better ways to do this that do not leave it in the hands of the legislature. Uh, you know, Iowa has a model where they let their version of the Legislative Service Bureau draw the maps, and then they put it forward to the legislature for an up or down vote. I've, a friend of mine has suggested that, you know, you could have had or we could have four people from each party, whether they be legislators or people that the legislature appoint. So you've got it's kind of like the board of canvassers. You've got equal number of partisans. So you have to come to a compromise and have them negotiate and draw the lines in public rather than 13 random citizens who uh, I think ultimately lean too heavily on experts. And do you have a particular, does you or your organization have a particular role in this lawsuit or this mapping process at this point? As for the current mapping process, just, just keeping an eye on it and making sure that, uh, that people who have been supportive of the effort or who are just interested are aware of what's going on. It's really difficult to distill this down into something that makes sense and that doesn't make people fall asleep within a couple of minutes. Uh, with, the, with the lawsuit, um, I have... You know, organization that I have, uh, in addition to Fair Maps, has worked with the plaintiffs to help with the the funding of the lawsuit, and um, just keeping them up to speed on what's going on. And uh, you know, we believed, I in particular believed heavily in the merits of the case, and I think was you know now we have a 3-0 decision from this panel, and a denial of an emergency stay from the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, backing that up. Well, Tony, thank you very much. Uh, an issue that will continue to be of interest, uh, really should be an, int- uh, an issue of interest to people across the state of Michigan. Um, and of course, uh, we look forward to seeing you again on Tuesday when IPSER will be holding its uh, monthly uh, public policy forum on, on this matter as well. Uh, Matt, 
always a pleasure, always enough to talk about. Um, any last thoughts? Well, as Tony said, the commission has been rather defiant about the lawsuit, and I would encourage everyone to see this as an opportunity to correct, um, by all accounts, the biggest defect in the, the process. Uh, you know, they we should say that the public remains supportive of the changes, um, especially uh, the uh the changes to the partisan composition uh, of the the relationship between districts and statewide votes. Um, And this was the primary uh, citizen concern, as Tony said, expressed quite loudly and clearly uh, that was ignored by the commission. So rather than see it as a burden that's been imposed by the courts, I would encourage them to see it as a second chance uh, to to correct the biggest uh, defect in the process. Very kind of you, Matt. <laughs> well, uh, would you like my job? That is very well said. <laughs> yeah, very well said. And that's all the time we have on this edition of State of the State. My thanks again to Russ White and the staff here at MSU Radio Studios for their support of this program. Join us again next month on State of the State.